My name is Alan, and this is Matinees on Main Street. You're listening to a podcast about the history of the movies. It's a chronological story about the people who created the industry, the people who made the movies, the places and people that show them, and those of us who watch them. We are now at the point where the movies start to go global, and it happened very fast. First, there was Edison's kinetoscope, which seemed to frustrate a lot of people. Then there was a creative reaction where numerous people considered that projecting images to a crowd was a much better idea than limiting it to one person at a time squinting into an eyepiece. To be honest, there were quite a few of them, but to keep this story's congestion down, I'm only focusing on the major ones. Four episodes ago, I talked about the Lumieres, their cinematograph, and the shows they held as they tested the waters of Europe. In the next episode, I discussed Robert Paul's theatrograph. After that, I talked about Armand and Jenkins' machine that became the Edison projector as well as its appearance in New York City. Now, while Raff and Gammon and Edison are still attempting to sell their projectors across America and Canada, the Lumiere brothers are going to spread their camera projector around the world in a matter of a few years. The Edison people were still churning out vaudeville and theatrical film clips at the time, but the Lumieres said the world will now see the world, and it did. In a way, it's much like the beginnings of the Internet when we realized we could find information from anywhere. In the late 1890s, the public would soon see moving images of everything from Niagara Falls to the pyramids, from people in downtown Shanghai to the coronation of Tsar Nicholas II. The cinematograph was already appearing in various places in Europe, when the Lumiere Company made arrangements with B.F. Keith's vaudeville house in Manhattan. The first cinematographs appeared in Vienna in March of 1896, Germany in April, Russia in May, and in Serbia by June. The Lumieres were Europe's biggest photographic supply house, so word spread quickly among photographers. Many places had not yet seen the Edison Vitascope, and some had not even seen the Kinetoscope. Of the many places around the world that would eventually develop their own movie industry, almost all of them first experienced moving images through a cinematograph, and because of it, many of them refer to the movies as cinema. One source says, that the Lumieres hired a hundred people to act as selling agents throughout the globe. As far as I can tell, all were men, and many of them had a wanderlust for travel. There is no complete list of Lumiere salesmen, although the names of some of them have surfaced, especially the few who may have made some contribution to early film in other ways. The Lumiere company conceived an arrangement 
where these salesmen would travel to distant locations and would split the profits from selling the cinematographs as well as exhibiting the movies. I would also assume that these salesmen were responsible for their own lodging and food, but in some cases they were treated like special guests by some of the most important people of the land. Some of them met royalty, even dined with them, and on occasion had the opportunity to film them. In 1896, there was a magic to these moving-making cameras and projectors that was never found in the kinetoscope. It's impossible to tell if the excitement over the first movie clips were simply the magic of Edison's name, the charm of Lumiere salesman, or simply the experience of watching films expanded upon a screen while sitting with a group of people to experience it. Whatever it was, it was not a normal fad in the way that the kinetoscope or the amusement park ride was. From the beginning, there were people who could tell that this was going to be big, like bicycles or spiritualism. It was the way audiences seemed to grow bigger with each passing day, or the excitement in people's voices when they talked about it. And with each showing, even before all the tricks of the trade had been developed, there were people finding some kind of magic in projecting moving images. Unfortunately, none of these people were involved in the film industry. The story of Lumiere's cinematograph in America starts with B.F. Keith. I talked about Benjamin Keith and his partner Edward Albee in episode 22, and I'll be discussing them again in an upcoming episode, so I won't go into much detail right now. I will say that they were working out of Boston, and while working there, they were expanding their control over vaudeville. To do this, they were starting to build or take over theaters in northeastern United States and up into Canada. In New York City, they owned the Union Square building. The building was over 20 years old when Keith and Albee took it over in 1893. Previously, it had been used primarily for theater, but of course, Keith and Albee used it for their continuous program of vaudeville. The Union Square Park area was still the center of New York theater at the time, so when Keith and Albee moved into the neighborhood, they were challenging other big impresarios of the town, such as Oscar Hammerstein and Frederick Proctor. This is the area where Coster and Biles projected the Vitascope and where the Mutoscope Biograph Company set up their first offices. Since the beginning of the year, Word had been filtering back to the states about the success of the cinematograph and the theatrograph. This business gossip was heard within the vaudeville circuit, as they were always keen to finding top-notch European talent to book into American theaters. But nothing that year provided as much excitement as the projectors in the music halls. Much of that popularity depended upon the idiosyncrasies of the machine, as well as the type of films that were being offered. Robert Paul depended too much upon Edison films, which the crowds had already seen, or making imitation Lumiere films, while the Lumiere salesmen were already making film clips from around the world. So Keith asked his agent in Europe to make arrangements to have the cinematograph brought to New York. 
Keith made a commitment for June and July of 1896. Two months after the appearance of the Edison Vitascope at Coster and Biles Music Hall, the cinematograph would appear at Keith's Union Square Theater. Apparently, the first Lumiere cameraman to arrive in America was Felice McQuish. McQuish was born in Algeria and, as a young man, worked at the Lumiere plant in Lyon. It seems that at the beginning, the Lumiere's first sales representatives were trained employees, but they soon started looking outside the company. McQuish doesn't seem to have had much experience at the plant, but as an ambitious young man fresh out of the army, he was willing to seek excitement in traveling the world as he promoted the cinematograph. The New York exhibition of the cinematograph was set for the end of June, and at that time there were things to worry about. First of all was Edison. So far, the cinematograph had had no competition and managed to capture Europe for itself. Even in farther away places like India or Egypt, their only real threat of competition was from some old kinetoscope at best. But setting up in New York put them on Edison's home turf. And while there were many different locations for the two cameras to project in, how Edison would take the appearance of this French projector was worrisome. There are those who believe that he was truly angered by their appearance, although there is reason to doubt that. It seems that Edison had still not awakened to the promise of the cinema, and while he still may not have been happy about it, he didn't seem to make any moves. Supposedly, he had tried to purchase a cinematograph to study it, but was not able to obtain one. At the same time, he was aware of the limitations of the cinematograph, such as its slow film rate, and he was willing to dismiss it. Another problem was that in May, the Lathams had attempted their last-ditch effort to get a machine on the market. Now called the idoloscope, it proved to be somewhat inferior to the others. Worse, the Lathams were still determined to make longer films. But the limitations of their camera and projector made watching those longer films painful. Quality had a lot to do with these first machines. Edison's Vitascope had a high frame rate, making it easy to see the action, but the company's repeated use of vaudeville artists and their less inventive film technique made things a little repetitive. With the Latham's idoloscope, the only good thing to say was that they were pushing the envelope of time. As for the Lumieres, the frame rate of the cinematograph was too low, but the lenses and camera work was so good that everyone praised it in the beginning. It wasn't until the Biograph arrived, a camera that provided both a good frame rate and a clear picture, that people started to understand how stiff the Lumiere images were when you ran the camera at a slow rate. McWeesh must have arrived in New York in mid-June. By the last week of the month, he had ads placed in the local newspapers. The ads proclaimed the cinematograph the real thing in Europe's sensation. Unlike the Edison premiere, almost nothing is written about the premiere of the cinematograph. 
I suppose that the novelty had already worn off for the members of the press. For them, it was a game of names, as they teased that the cinematograph had the longest name yet. But the reviews that did appear really praised the Lumiere's imagery, and the Lumieres were soon sending over more cinematographs with cameramen to perk up Philadelphia and Boston. By September, Alexandre Promio arrived. Promio, a Lyonnaise optician, was one of the very first cinematograph agents who was actually involved in the development of the camera projector. Promio seems to have developed rock star status as a cinematograph cinematographer. This was due to his ability to film famous heads of state. He did film French President Felice Farr, and the filming of Tsar Nicholas's coronation was also attributed to him, although he didn't do it. From America's point of view, all of this was simply a French attempt to invade the American market. But to the Lumieres, it was way past that. This was about a quick world conquest before the novelty ran out. I'm not sure if the salesmen bought the cameras they used to travel around the world to take images. It does look as if any man who was willing to travel the globe for the Lumieres had to have a fair amount of money saved before he even started. While many of these men were making hundreds of francs a night, not all of them were. Still, it isn't known how many of these Lumiere salesmen failed, as their names seemed to have disappeared into the dust of history. How many of them lost their money and ended up marrying a local girl, or exchanging work on a steamer for a ride back to France, will probably never be known. The first salesman traveled France and England. Although that may have been redundant, it also gave some of them the experience they needed to visit other places. And those who got their feet wet exhibiting in France soon were training other projectionists in Germany and Eastern Europe. Besides exhibiting films, these Lumiere representatives were also supposed to make films that were to be shipped back to Lyon. Antoine had been a photographer before he settled down into the business of making glass plates, and his son Louis also had some photographic experience. So it was Louis who trained the first people, and that involved much more than simply learning how to load and shoot a film camera. He worked on training the salesman in the art of photography. After all, what is a film short but a moving photograph? Whether shooting landscapes or cityscapes or even a group of people, you had to know how to level the scene. That meant more than just adjusting the legs on the tripod. You had to know how the image was balanced, even before you took the shot. Of even greater importance was finding the appropriate visual diagonals that provided just the right amount of imbalance to make the picture interesting. This had been something that artists had been doing for centuries. While the horizon and the even placement of objects created balance, if all you have is balance, the picture gets boring. So just the right amount of imbalance, usually in the form of a road going off to the side, helped with that. A good way to understand that 
is to see the Lumiere's most famous moving picture, the train approaching La Ciotat. If Louis had stood on the track and filmed the train approaching, it would have been perfectly balanced, although the train would have been heading straight towards him. But as a photographer, he knew that the best way to do it visually is if he stood to the side. Obviously, it was much safer, but also the visual diagonal of the tracks and the front of the loading platform all created diagonals that moved the energy of the image to the left. And although it pulls you away from the center of the picture, it is usually more exciting. That's what Louis Lumiere was emphasizing. Of course, there was also the issue of movement. They couldn't just film a minute of a still image. Something had to be moving. People, animals, water, trains, cars, you name it. There was even a name for this, actualities. It's a French term that, in English, implies the same thing. Filming things as they really are, but doing so in a way that implied action. All of this had to be imbibed by the salesmen, and they were soon out to sell it. The historical picture of who went where and when they did it is nowhere near complete. But it is known that the first places they visited after France and England was to the east, Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. This included places that were not yet independent, such as Serbia and Yugoslavia. Probably the first salesman to set out was Eugène Dupont. I have to admit that there's almost nothing written about the lives of these Lumiere agents, but Dupont did sell French goods in Vienna. So it was there that he set up a cinematograph business in March of 1896. At first it was in a photography shop, but the Lumiere way seems to have been to take it to the man in charge. Just about every one of the salesmen took great efforts to show their machine to the local power structure politically. This could mean a duke or even a king. Another sure way of moving quickly up the political ladder was to hold an exhibition at the nearest French embassy. Doing that brought Dupont and the cinematograph into the presence of Kaiser Franz Joseph I. Pretty soon, Dupont was spreading out to places like Serbia in the city of Belgrade. Germany was held for the Stahlwerk Company. They were makers of sweets, but through their use of vending machines for the dispensing of their candy, they became interested in all sorts of mechanical devices for entertainment. The Stahlwerks had even backed the Skladnowskis at one time. Just like Dupont, Ludwig Stahlwerk acted as more of a sales manager than as a projectionist. His job was to hire men to exhibit and film footage of Germany. This included not only the company of Cologne, but Berlin, Stuttgart, Hanover, and the other cities. As for Charles Moisson, his skills were mechanical, and after starting his career in Paris, he left to set up shop in Lyon a city that probably was in more need of an electrical mechanic 
than was Paris. He was working there just as the Lumieres were getting ready to move into the business of making movie equipment. He claimed that he was there when Antoine presented Louis with a strip of Edison film and heard him discuss the idea of moving images. In early 1896, he traveled through the various German principalities and ended up in Russia. All of this was timed so that Moisson could film the coronation of Russia's Tsar Nicholas II. Of all the news events of that year, this was probably the most impressive. For the event, Moisson would be accompanied by another Lumiere employee, Francis Dublier. Like many of the others, Francis Dublier was from Lyon. He seemed to have had some kind of leg defect, possibly from disease or an accident. His father thought it bad enough that he actively pushed his son into some kind of occupation that didn't require a lot of walking. That meant he ended up working at a bench job at the Lumiere's facility. His father passed away when he was 12. Dublier claimed that he was the young man riding a bicycle in the film clip Lumiere Workers Leaving the Factory. Dublier ended up working with Louis in the chemical lab when they developed camera film. In the spring of 1896, he traveled through northern Europe, although it's not known if he did this with Moisson or separately. For a while, he projected the cinematograph in Amsterdam and he seems to have stopped in some of the same German towns that Moisson did. He also projected films in St. Petersburg just a few days before the coronation. America had a hard time grasping with the idea of a royal coronation, although we go through what seems like a mini-coronation every four years. Still, our political structure is such that no one ends up with the kind of power that's held by certain foreign leaders, and when you realize the damage they could easily do, it sure makes us aware of the restrictions we do place on political power. And yet, when these occasional appearances of regal celebration reach the eyes of the American public, there are a large number of people who are dazzlingly blinded by the glory of the celebration. In my lifetime, we've witnessed a few royal weddings of that nature, but when we look back 100 to 150 years, you can see a vastly large number of these weddings, funerals, and coronations happening, and the public was always struck by the awe of it. Looking back, this was the coronation of the last Romanov. This celebration in St. Petersburg and Moscow was the unintended last celebration of their Tsar and Tsarina, the family that would die so ignobly at the hands of political revolutionaries two decades later. All through that troubled Romanov reign, there would be silent movies recording the events of their reign, and at its beginning, two Lumiere cameramen recorded what they could. Nicholas II's father, the hyper-reactionary Tsar Alexander III, had died late in 1894, so there was a good year and a half for Nicholas to prepare for the celebration. Both he and his wife, Alexandra, were both considered underprepared for their roles as world leaders, and even rather naive. 
Still, as many people would say, the celebration was as much for the public as it was for the royalty. Moscow went out of its way to prepare itself for the coronation, especially along the four-mile stretch of Sverskaya Street, now called Leningradsky Avenue. The city was built of wood and stone houses that were occasionally stuccoed. Everything along the route was restuccoed, cleaned up, walled off, filled up, or hid behind a screen of greenery that impressed the reporters. An air of festivity filled the city, although in the week leading up to the coronation, the state police discovered a bomb manufacturing site located under Sverskaya Street that was linked to the Nihilists. The Western world had been suffering the occasional effects of anarchism since the rise of the Industrial Revolution. Russia, a country that was way behind the curve when it came to industrialism, still suffered from these attacks by various anarchic groups. This was how Nicholas's grandfather had died. And yet attempts were being made by Nicholas to lessen the burden on his people despite the chronic hatred of these violent political organizations. On the whole, Nicholas was granting a general amnesty towards the poor and imprisoned, but these moves were really just a one-time deal. Several days before the coronation, royalty started to arrive. Although no heads of state were there, a number sent representatives. The most important was probably Li Hongzheng, who was the power behind the Chinese throne. Lots of dukes and duchesses from Eastern European duchies arrived. Many of those were tied to Tsarina Alexandra's German family. The Crown Prince of Denmark showed up, and the Pope, and the Roman Catholic Church, which was represented by Cardinal Agliordi, in hope of releasing Catholic priests who had been imprisoned due to violations of Russian religious laws. The United States was represented by Admiral Selfridge, who arrived with his cruiser, the USS Minneapolis. At the same time, the Tsar's special train arrived carrying the Tsar, his wife, and their infant daughter, Olga. The train station was outside of Moscow, and the public provided a massive demonstration of devotion to royalty when they arrived. From there, they traveled to Petrovsky Palace, also outside of Moscow. This was a slow, stately performance of movement, and it was all planned as the first major celebration of the Tsar entering Moscow. All traffic had been banned on the Svarskaya since early in the morning, and at 2.30 in the afternoon, a cannon boomed, signifying the start of everything. A massive procession of military men Guards, horses, carriages, and royalty slowly walked the four miles, or 6.3 kilometers, to the Kremlin. Three squadron of Circassians, all decked out in their brilliantly red uniforms, were led by Prince Dolgonki, who rode a black charger. He was the master of the ceremony. What followed him were grenadiers, engineers, palace troops, standard bearers from the various areas of Russia, more military, trade guilds, huntsmen, court members, and finally the Tsar on a white charger as he was greeted by a vast roar of the crowd that was called a perfect hurricane of noise.
after more military men, cabinet ministers, aides-de-camp, and officers of the suite, the Tsarina arrived in a magnificent gilded carriage drawn by four pairs of cream-colored horses. She was flanked by esquires and Cossacks guarding her carriage before finally a trailing of more military men and palace office holders brought the parade to a close. With that, the crowd slowly closed upon the end of the parade and a massive traffic jam and celebration was there to behold. This was the parade that both Dublier and Moisson attempted to film, and it was far from over. They struggled to capture the images, although there were quite a number of stipulations concerning what and where they could film. The next day, the Tsar and Tsarina had to officially enter the church, the Cathedral of the Annunciation. There they received the benediction from the archbishop. One reporter described it as everything was life, movements of color, bands of music played along the route. The entire celebration was bathed in sunshine. It took several more days before the official coronation. The newspapers reported it to be May 26th, although the Russians officially considered it May 14th, according to the Julian calendar. At first, the American press was fawning over the celebration, but by the end, they were running out of steam. Worse, a bridge tragedy in British Columbia pushed some of the story into the background and cast a bit of a pall over the news event for Americans and Canadians. So did what happened after the ceremony. Anyone who was anyone rode off to attend the massive dinner celebration that was held outside of Moscow. The invited guests had a massive banquet to eat and dine from, while the citizens of Moscow stood and watched. After the banquet, it was assumed that there would be enough food for the citizens of the city to eat from, as if they were untrained animals. But a rumor passed that there was not enough food or alcohol for everyone, and a stampede ensued. Somewhere in the vicinity of a 100,000 people were there, and of the many thousands who stampeded, close to 1,400 were trampled to death. Surprisingly, this incident was filmed by Moisson and Dublier, but the film was confiscated by the Russians, although word about the deaths did get back to the press. Supposedly, the incident was considered the first bad omen of Nicholas II's reign, the first of many that would lead to his death. What footage Moisson and Dublier did manage to keep was soon shown around the world. Both men continued to travel, exhibit, and make films for the Lumières. Moisson was still an important mechanic at the Lumière's plant and generally preferred to stay in Lyon and work. Dublier, on the other hand, seems to have made a career out of being a traveling cinematographer. Over the next several years, he filmed in just about every European country and even went to Egypt, India, China, and Japan. Once the French film industry set up their American home in Fort Lee, New Jersey, Dublier moved to the States. 
A few of the other cameramen who traveled our globe were André Carré, who spent time in Eastern Europe, Marius Chapius, who helped Monsieur Promio in Russia, Gabriel Vev, who covered places as distantly dispersed as Mexico, Quebec, and Japan. Alexandre Michon traveled through southern Russia. Both Vittorio Calcina and Giuseppe Filippi represented the Lumieres in Italy. In 1898, Sunikichi Shibata purchased a cinematograph and created the earliest films in Japan. Finally, there's the story of Maria Sestier. He was to market the cinematograph in India in 1896. He left in June, and it took him 16 days to reach Mumbai from France. That summer seems to have been both extremely hot, even for India, and when it did rain, it poured. During this heat wave, he showed films at Watson's Hotel on July 7th. In the audience was a man named Harashandra Sakharam Bhatvadekar. He worked as a photographer in India and after the showing arranged to purchase a kineoptoscope from England, which was shipped to him. As Savi Dada, he became India's cinematic pioneer. Sestier also filmed urban scenes in Mumbai. Unfortunately, when he attempted to ship the canisters back to France, British authorities opened them and damaged the light-sensitive film. After his frustrating summer in India, Sestier arrived in Sydney in the early spring of September. To his surprise, there were already projector operators in town. At the Criteria Theatre, Joseph McMahon was running a kinematograph, and at the Trivoli, American magician Carl Hertz was using one of Robert Paul's theatrographs, although he was calling it a cinematograph. Hertz had been traveling the Southern Hemisphere showing his theatrograph, and not long after his argument with Sestier, he gave up the cinematograph name and traveled to Sri Lanka. At first, Sestier took off from Melbourne in frustration where he discovered three separate projectionists all claiming to use a cinematograph and another who had a vitoscope. Sestia was soon back in Sydney. He had discovered that although everyone seemed to be using the cinematograph name, no one seemed to care what you called the damn machine as long as it was showing moving pictures. He set up a movie house with local photographer Henry Barnett and the films he showed proved to be quite popular. He and Barnett also started recording Australian events and actualities, including the Melbourne Cup horse race. Eventually, Sestier returned to France and ran the Lumiere's patent division. The lesson in all of this is that almost immediately, the public everywhere was fascinated with moving images once they were projected. It was probably based on the same emotional logic that inspired so many different people to devise projectors once they understood that Edison was not going to do that. Looking into the kinetoscope charmed very few people. As it was designed, it was an amusement park novelty. It's very possible that the carny implications of cheap novelty entertainment turned off many people who might have been curious about it. 
To much of the public, amusement parlors were the kind of places where you had to watch out for pickpockets and make sure that the man at the counter was not gaming his three-for-a-nickel ring-toss novelty. But once the moving images were on a screen, they were removed from the amusement parlor atmosphere and were now being shown in places that were considered safer. It was no longer about guess-my-weight machines and funhouse mirrors. It was now in the realm of magic lantern lectures, local theater, and panorama paintings. One last thing that the Sestia story suggests is not just the explosion of projectors, but the explosion of names, and many of them are twisted distortions of ancient Greek origin. People laughed that the cinematograph had such a long name, but others were even worse. On top of that, projectionists and reporters were confusing all the names, if not outright replacing them. In the coming months, ads could be found in American newspapers confusing Edison projectors with the bioscope, or the cinematoscope, or the idoloscope. This really only mattered if you were seeking out the best available images. Otherwise, it was just a name game switcheroo. But more than anything, this all meant that the moving pictures had exploded into a major fad of historic proportions. Next time, we'll take a break again to talk about two popular Edison performers, Sissy Fitzgerald and May Irwin, before we talk about a few late-appearing projectors, just to add to all the confusion. Thanks for listening.